What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Leslie Picker, Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange. Jim and David have the morning off. June jobs is a miss. First one in over a year, and that's with some negative revisions. Two-year yields back below five, but stocks are still on pace for a losing week. Our roadmap begins with that slowing job growth. The fewest jobs added in June since December of 2020. But wage growth is higher than expected. Will that change the Fed rate trajectory? Plus, Treasury Secretary Yellen coming to the defense of U.S. businesses while walking a diplomatic tightrope in China. And checking in on the state of the consumer, Levi's slashing its guidance in Costco. Same-store sales slip once again. Let's get right into market reaction to the jobs number. A lot of interesting internals in this print uh, this morning. Restaurants down eight, uh, first decline there in, I think, 28 months. Government jobs, about a third of the jobs added. Yeah, so private sector was a little bit uh, weaker in terms of job creation. Uh, it had the market really uh, in a misdirection move leading into this, right? Yesterday was all about, you know, mini panic in the bond market, about a super hot number in the ADP report. So this really did... Uh, to tr take away a lot of that concern. On the other hand, there are no all clears in this particular moment in the cycle. It's either, uh, you know, a weakening jobs picture is okay. We can moderate the growth that's expected. But a miss after 14 months of beats on the top line payrolls number, you know, then it brings up the idea of uh, is this finally the inflection point? Mm -hmm. um, not sure we have to panic about that yet, but you do mention the stronger wage number. We are on track for the Fed to be doing more. And I think we're just at this moment where, you know, you're never too far away from one thing you're afraid of or the other. The market's had a nice run here. Uh, bond market is, is kind of calming down, but not really taking back a lot of that yield jump yesterday. And we are in a zone where yields at this level, especially going up at that pace, do pinch. Uh, in terms of equity sentiment, in terms of bond market volatility, feeding into equity volatility, and also restraining the economy. You know, we are up, we're up in uh, the area of real inflation-adjusted yields. We haven't been in 15 years or so. And that means the real economy kind of gets restrained by that. So all those things put together, uh, it was a bullet dodged, I think, in a sense, it, it, you know, because we really were leaning toward the potential for a big upside surprise. But now it's, okay, now where are we? Mm. Do we have to brace for more slowdown? Uh, Fed's still in the game, although still a go-slow Fed is okay for this market. Initially, you did see more of a reaction in the bond market. I'm curious, Mike, as, uh, you know, traders started to digest this report, what is it that gave him more comfort, you think, I, you know, once they got past that initial print. I just think it's the softness uh, in the headline, the downward revisions from prior months, and this idea that we're not in this headlong reacceleration moment in job growth. Therefore, you know, labor tightness is not getting exacerbated. We are now all of a sudden looking ahead to a CPI number next week. Some people are saying it's going to come in below 3%. You have a lot of things working in your favor of getting a benign number for CPI next month. And then the question is, well, you're, you're kind of running out of the better comparisons and maybe it firms up from there. So that's the tricky spot we are in. Um, and then, you know, until between now and earnings reports, 
I think this is what we're going to be kicking around, how the Fed reacts to this kind of in-the-middle uh, labor market report. Uh, certainly, that's going to be the, the tone of next week between the macro print CPI and, of course, the banks on Friday. Your point about whether or not this is the best it's going to be this year is exactly what B of A says today. Uh, Hartnett says, use Q3 tightening of financial conditions as an opportunity to position for a hard landing. And although uh, June CPI will be the trough, there's a strong likelihood it goes back to, say, the fours in the second half. Mm. Yeah, which is exactly why I think you're not going to get a signal from the Fed or from the markets inferring the Fed's next move that says we don't have to worry entirely about that anymore. I still think it's an okay kind of mixture of factors that are driving things right now, which is relative to six months ago, the Fed is kind of moving in small steps with lots of time between each step. That's okay. Um, the bond market is, is sort of stopped assuming we're going to get a rush to cutting rates, which means perhaps we're pushing off the recession risk. Earnings have flattened out. So all these things are kind of, you know, in this more neutral zone as opposed to, you know, at the precipice of, of falling away in a, in a more damaging way. But then, of course, as you look through the data, the average hourly earnings, those did surpass expectations, uh, rose by 12 cents or 0.4 percent. Uh, that, of course, is what the Fed is paying attention to, because that is what keeps inflation stickier, regardless of you know where the unemployment rate is. If people are getting paid more. Yeah. I mean, as long as it stays They'll spend it. where it is. Um, but I, I agree. It. Although it's, it's funny, there's a lot of work right now talking about if that's really a, a, a causal driver of inflation or if it just kind of reflects the environment we've been in for a while. Uh, but, you, you know, somebody could counter that and say, you know, real disposable income is going to go positive again or it's going to stay positive, And that's not a bad thing for uh, for the economy. So I think that's where that's where we are. Yesterday, cyclical stocks took it on the chin with that yield move. Bank stocks suffered again. So it wasn't about, oh, the big mega cap names that have performed so well that really took a, uh, a gouge out of the market yesterday. It was the stuff that really is responsive to the cost of money, the trajectory of the economy. Yeah. Interesting note out of Fitch just now. Labor supply uh, seems to have hit a ceiling as we didn't get any further improvement in right. labor force participation. Uh, they note that the unemployment rate did, did, did tick down a bit marginally. But to Mike's broader point about sort of macro Uncertainty. That was one very large theme for Andy Jassy of Amazon yesterday, talking to our John Fort about how Europe may be doing a little bit better than they had priorly assumed, but uh, certainly the overall macro picture globally uh, is very uncertain. Here's what he said. I don't think any of us believe we're out of the woods um, with the economy. I, as I said, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty, and I don't think anybody knows what the next several months are going to be like. And, you know, I, I, like everybody, we've got a plan, and, um, you know, uh, we had a plan the last few years, too, and, and things changed. Pretty uh, interesting uh, series of questions about AI and yes. chips and getting revved up to compete with NVIDIA. Uh, a consumer that's cautious uh, and also not just taking a look at costs in the media division, but all across all their different silos. Yeah, it was a, it was a really great interview uh, that John Fort did there, um, talking about a whole host of issues. He asked him again, of course, whether he would be interested in spinning off AWS. He said they could be talking about that when they're 80, <laughs> and the answer would still be the, likely the same. <laughs> they have no plans to do something like that anytime soon. But the, the AI impact, I think, is really notable here, because obviously they have a ton of competition. Um, but he believes that AWS will benefit from just the overall computing power that comes with the advent of AI as it gets bigger. Um, and then, of course, the role that maybe Alexa would play with regard to anticipating your next move or, or anticipating what you're going to ask about next. Yeah, I mean, 
I thought the message across almost all of the topic areas was, you know, it's business as usual here at Amazon. Yeah. So we know that there's this big AI opportunity. We've been there for a while. So we're doing what we've always been doing, and that's going to help, and it's going to help the business down the road. Uh, on costs, well, we're always attentive to all kinds of costs. Yeah. And so they're not getting this big, hey, we have the year of efficiency. We're going to get margins up. This is a new campaign. We're going hard at this. It's like, nope, this is kind of what we always do. We always deliver for the customer, and that's better for everybody in the end. Um, so I, I found that that was a little bit of a, of a, of a maybe a, a mixed or muddled message, and that maybe reflects how the stock has performed, which is there's not this one thing to seize on that says Amazon is levered perfectly to this very exciting thing that we want to capture right now, whether it is the margin story or the AI story or something uh, in a, as a global initiative. Yeah, that's a good point. Also talking about speed as well, which is, again, which is fascinating. Their, that's yeah. their MO the whole time. Yes, you know, which the company was founded. Exactly. But even increasing, you know, that's And how that helps in the long and, term. And I think that's the right message. It's totally core to how the business has been founded and the original, you know, shareholder letter from Jeff Bezos and all the rest that they worship over there. But I just didn't feel like there was this sort of high metabolism, here's what we're up to now, and it's different and new and fresh, and here's why you should be excited about it. Yeah. That's just my, my broader take on it, but very realistic and pragmatic and, and a lot of credibility behind everything he said. Yeah, that's, that's definitely Jassy's, uh, yeah. that's, that's his style. Uh, meantime, we're watching China today, the Treasury Secretary's visit there. First, as uh, Treasury Secretary, here's what she said overnight about her message to the country's senior officials. During meetings with my counterparts, I'm communicating the concerns that I've heard from the U.S. business community, including China's use of non-market tools like expanded subsidies for its state-owned enterprises and domestic firms, as well as barriers to market access for foreign firms. I've been particularly troubled by punitive actions that have been taken against U.S. firms in recent months. Eunice Yoon joins us this morning from Beijing to talk about her visit and definitely how it's being received there. Hi, Eunice. Hey, Carl. Where Secretary Yellen made those remarks uh, as she met with American business executives here for an American Chamber of Commerce event. Uh, companies that were re represented were Boeing, Cargill, Bank of America, Medtronics, S&P, among others. Uh, now, AmCham's president told me later that uh, his folks were very pleased with this hour-long conversation that he had with the Treasury Secretary and that uh, it really addressed, her, her trip really addresses a key, what he described, pain point for doing business in China, and that is the U.S.-China tensions. Now, Secretary Yellen had also met with the country's premier. This was the highest level official that she will likely meet during her four-day stay. Uh, Li Chang is uh, the uh, uh, Xi Jinping's point person to woo foreign investment and also um, has been tasked to try to dissuade uh, countries, especially from the West, to continue to de-risk or reduce their ties with China. Now, Secretary Yellen had also um, made quite a bit of an impression uh, here, and that's really one of the most interesting parts, was the commentary that we were hearing in the state media as well as in, as in social media. State media has been focusing on how her plane, when her plane landed here, a rainbow appeared. And they're saying that um, this really shows harmony can come about um, after conflict, suggesting that uh, the government really wants to put a positive spin on this visit. And the uh, social media commentary has largely
largely been focused on the fact that she dined at a local eatery that was very ordinary and was sitting in an open setting with average Chinese. And people, Carl, were saying, wow, somebody at this high level with this high standing in the U.S. government just sitting there with anybody could just come right up to them at an ordinary place. Um, really different from what they see here. Uh, fascinating. I guess, I guess we're glad it uh, wasn't a thunderstorm uh, during that first day. Eunice, thank you. Uh, Eunice Yoon uh, joining us with day one. I think it's a four-day visit. And um, we'll see to what degree this moves the needle. Awfully difficult thread, though, uh, to form between being uh, tough on some of these uh, ex export controls, uh, but not destabilizing the relationship even further. Yeah, and, and it seems like it's mostly been about atmospherics and signaling and saying we want to maintain a dialogue. So all those things Eunice was mentioning maybe is a, is a positive in that case. If we're deciding to say that this was, you know, a friendly and, 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 and kind of congenial get together, even though, you know, we have our issues. Most of them have been aired uh, at this point, and we want to make sure we don't kind of, you know, really further have a sudden break in disengagement. Right. And, and that was the whole point yeah. of her and then, uh, you know, Secretary of State Blinken before her, uh, just kind of reestablishing, making sure that that line of communication is open, doing these in-person visits. Um, but again, behind the scenes, and I think China is very skeptical of this. Um, you know, there are all sorts of steps in place to make sure that we're protecting national security, especially as it pertains to things like AI, uh, things like chips. And so, to your point, Carl, it's a, it's a very delicate balance that you have to, you know, walk as you pursue these talks and make sure that uh, that line of communication is open and in a way that kind of benefits both nations. Yeah, although, I mean, the, the administration has worked hard. You mentioned Blinken, now, uh, now Yellen. There's talk that maybe Raimondo does a visit next. There's talk about a summit, uh, right. perhaps, between mm -hmm. the president and she, uh, maybe in San Francisco later in the year. So... Uh, that at least that ping pong effect of of discussion is probably I don't know. Would you argue it's market market positive? It's I think it on a net basis yeah. would be market positive. It's the removal of a potential negative is the way I would think about it too. Yeah. Of where you'd have this hiding. It's remarkable. I mean, what were we five plus years into when you know the original tariffs were in place? We're not even talking about rolling most of those back. I mean, so it's been a long process of reestablishing a different. Uh, somewhat more tense terms of uh, uh, of this relationship. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you know, your thoughts on just the overall timing. Obviously, with China more in slowdown mode, does that make yeah. kind of a leverage picture? Who has the leverage between the two countries? Does that shift? But yeah. then at the same time, you know, we're over here tightening as right. well. So it's, you know, yeah, it's a little bit dicey. I think it really just reinforces the mutual dependence to a degree. I mean, we kind of would love them to grow as well uh, at this point. So it's not a zero sum, hopefully. <laughs> A lot of companies here would agree with that. Uh, when we come back, a lot more on the jobs number this morning and what's at stake for investors. We'll talk with David Kelly of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Take a look at the pre-market here. Still trying to get out of the uh, red. Uh, NASDAQ had gone green for a moment. We'll get to some calls as well on Disney, Conoco, Rivian, Ford, IBM, theme parks. When we return. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Futures pricing in an 89% chance of a 25 basis point hike this month after the June jobs report showed non-farm payrolls growth below forecasts. Joining us now uh, here at Post 9 is J.P. Morgan Asset Management Chief Global Strategist David Kelly. David, thank you for being here. Um, so you had payrolls coming in, you know, about 257,000 higher in June, unemployment rate going to 3.6%. Yeah. You know, what's your take on what happened last month and and why the softer read uh, isn't really doing much to stem the market's expectation for a a hike this month? Well, I think the first thing is that a lot of people overreacted to ADP yesterday because ADP is so flaky a number. I mean, private payrolls within this report grew by 149,000. ADP said 497,000. So they missed it by a factor of three. Uh, So... I think people overreact to that. No, what we're seeing is a welcome moderation. Uh, everything we're seeing says the labor market is slowing down, but it's just slowing down slowly. And I think what, what we're really learning is what does 10 million job openings really mean for the pace, you know, for the relationship between growth and jobs. And it's just keeping job growth strong, even though you know, there are parts of the economy that are clearly slowing. Is it slowing enough, though? I mean, it's slowing slowly, but it, what does that mean, you know, for the Fed's calculus? Uh, uh, well, I, I wish the Federal Reserve would, would not worry about this so much. Next week, we're going to get a CPI report, which I believe is going to show year-over-year CPI at 3.2%. Okay? You know, a third of what it was a year earlier. Uh, so there's no question that the economy is slowing down, that inflation is slowing down. So all we're arguing about is the pace of it slowing down. You know, and I don't think it's worth causing a recession for a second derivative. Uh, and, and that's what I, you know, that's why I think the Federal Reserve is just overreacting to this because, you know, the way that they're tightening, it just raises all sorts of risks down the road, which I, I think they should try and avoid. Doesn't that support, though, the, the stance in general of Powell of let's go slower and just take in more data between our decisions to, to hike? Yeah, but it, it doesn't support the idea of overshooting in rates and then cutting them in 24 and cutting them in 25. Right. You should, just, you should go, go slowly get back up to where you think the number should be in the long run. But in the long run, they think the federal funds rate should be 2.5%. Now, I don't even agree with that. I think that might be too low. But, but they should just gradually ease up to that and stop. This is just being way too clever to try and overshoot and bring it down because we don't know what the economy in the long run is going to do with 5.5% federal funds rate. And, and it could cause a lot of problems that we haven't really thought about right now. Uh, the Hawks, uh, like, like Waller, I mean, look at the bank situation in March and argue it was about a handful of mismanaged operations. I mean, are they, are they, are they Pollyanna? Well, we know that, look, there's a problem on the asset side and the liability side of the balance sheet. Now, the liability side is going to get worse. Every month that we've got short-term rates over 5%, there's going to be money seeping out of the banking system on the liability side. But the asset side, the problem with commercial real estate, it's going to take time. This is a slow-burning fuse. And, you, you know, it's, it's kind of like when somebody's twisting a screwdriver and eventually you twist it and you hear the wood break. What's the point? If we're going to get there anyway, by, by the end of next year, we're going to be below 2% on inflation. And, and if we can get there without a recession, why not do it? 
Speaking of uh, that asset side of the balance sheet, I'm just curious your thoughts on global yields right now. Global yields, 15-year high, the two-year, I think is a 16-year high. Um, Investors have been really buying bonds Mm -hmm. on a bet that growth would slow, but obviously that hasn't materialized yet. So what do today's numbers mean, you think, in terms of a further capitulation on that front? Well, I think, you know, I think this is a good time to, to, to buy bonds. This is, this is your one opportunity here. Because, you know, the bonds are kind of like the cicada bug. They show up every 17 years. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is the year you can actually get a decent deal on a, bo- on, on a bond portfolio. So this is the first time you, you won't hear me often say, I'd be overweight bonds, but I would certainly be level weight bonds right now because I, I strongly believe that this is not an inflationary economy. And, and we're, we're just being on this inflation roller coaster. But think, think about a roller coaster is you get off where you got on. We got on at 2%, we're going to get off at 2% again. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, you know, we can talk about the Fed all, all we like, but in the end, the inflation rate is coming down. But at one point, and Mike was talking about this a little earlier, at what point do you think the, the yields kind of get to that level where equity investors start to get a little more skittish? Um, you know, we've been seeing them kind of sell off in tandem, but at what point is there more of a, you know, a rotation between the two? I, I think we're very far away from that. I mean, I think the people who are pouring money into the equity market are not looking for 4% gains. You know, I mean, even if you get 4% of the 10-year, I, I think they're a different crew. So I, I think if people get scared about the real economy, that could hurt the equity market. Yeah. If people get scared about the real problem, banks, that could be a problem. But otherwise, I think people are going to reckon that, that eventually rates are going to be lower because inflation is going to come down. So why not uh, take advantage of stocks that are going to, going to do well in a low-rate environment? David Kelly with a message to the market. Do not kill the bond cicadas. Not this year. Not this year, anyway. David, appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks, David. When we come back, Meta out of the gate with signups for threads. Twitter responding by threatening some legal action. We'll get you all the details. Take a look at the pre-market here as we wrap up the week. Uh, Still plenty of stocks to get to. We'll talk about what's coming uh, down the pike in the week ahead. More Squawk on the Street when we return. Canva presents Unexplained Appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Twitter threatening legal action against Meta over its Threads app, accusing the Instagram parent of systematic and unlawful misappropriation of trade secrets. Meta insists, quote, no one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. The company also claims 30 million signups in 16 hours. The Times today calls it basically the fastest growing app in history at this stage of the game and on pace to a couple hundred million in a couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the... the Quickest uh, signups would be from ChatGPT uh, over, I think, what a one-month period yes. of time. So that was 100 million signups. This is 30 million. It seems if they keep this pace, they will definitely surpass that. Although was that app downloads? I mean, for ChatGPT, yeah. or or is that just users? I couldn't remember. But um, you know, it, it is interesting. Although it does get to the point that we, you know, people have remarked on that all these 
social apps seem to just look the same, feel the same. They kind of operate along the, the same uh, metrics. In fact, Jack Dorsey tweeted yesterday joking that there's like seven similar apps that look all like We Twitter. wanted flying cars. We got yeah, seven Twitter Exactly. And, hey, by the way, every streaming service looks like what Netflix came up with, right? So it sort of feels like it's just, here's what we're familiar with. But interesting, seems like that Twitter at least considers it modest threat. Well, and to your point, I mean, we do subscribe to multiple streaming services. I mean, who's to say this is a zero-sum game? Right. And people are going to choose between Twitter and Threads if it's, you know, one or the other. Let's get the opening bell here. And the CNBC Real-Time Exchange. The big board is Kodiak Gas Services, celebrating a recent IPO at the NASDAQ. It is Nuzier Coffee Packing Company. As breath fills in, and we're just north of 4,400, actually right on the nose on this Friday. As for Meta itself, uh, the Times does talk about strategic uh, decisions they made, opening up to celebrities early, yeah. managing to get Oprah and Tom Brady and Mariah Carey on board, which is huge for overall usage. And Rosenblatt today actually goes to 333. Yeah, fully deploying the advantage of the Instagram machinery uh, in every way. Uh, makes a lot of sense to hit the ground running on that. Although I think it's funny, we're, we're focused so much on draining engagement away from Twitter. I mean, in theory, if it saps a little bit from Instagram, where the, the ad engine is fully operational, yeah. that's not an outright positive. But uh, they have yeah, a lot of house money to play with in terms of their own uh, revenue. I do think it's interesting, though, to look at the stock. There's a five-year. This ramp we've got, 140% year-to-date, takes it right toward that $300 level, which capped it in 2020, and it's where it really went vertical to the downside uh, back uh, in the beginning part of last year. So maybe a little bit of a, of a tougher road ahead to get up to that 330 level. Just for broad terms, it was a $380 stock at the peak, went down to 90 We've gained 200 bucks off the low. So it's, it's taking credit for a lot of improvement, I think, mostly on margins uh, and, uh, and obviously, you know, being able to harvest uh, on the ad side. It's basically at its average valuation, though, uh, of the last five years. So it's not super expensive. It's just sort of kind of covered a long distance in a short period of time. Yeah, and it's hard to see, at least in the short run, how this catalyzes, you know, an improvement to margins because they've said they're not going to do advertising on the platform right away. They're going to wait for more of a critical mass uh, in order to kind of get more people on the app and make it yeah. more attractive to advertisers. So the question, if you're a you know market participant or an analyst, is how do you actually model that moving forward? At what point in time do you start to see money generated from those? Uh, by the way, we, we showed that great chart which the, the journal had yesterday comparing ad revenue at uh, at Meta versus ad oh, revenue yeah. at Twitter. I mean, it's. It's not really a contest, and the journal's point was that it's it's that muscle in the ad market already that gives them essentially, a, in theory, a big head start exactly. in packaging ad ad buys into threads. The consensus revenue gain for Meta this year and next is two to three times the peak annual revenue Twitter ever had. So they were already expected to grow at that pace. Uh, just so scale is not really a contest. It really is all about uh, just sort of level of, uh, of engagement, that kind of real time, uh, you know, kind of mo model of in the moment uh, engagement. So we'll see. And yeah. those economies of scale, of course, are even more important. You know, if you get in a situation where the ad market materially shrinks uh, yeah. and people will start to gravitate more toward places that they're familiar as opposed to, you know, somewhere that maybe looks like it's losing share of, of users and so forth. Um, overall, pretty mixed picture uh, in terms of sectors that are up or down. Um, 
watching uh, interesting Walmart lagging here, uh, Mike. I wonder if, if Jassy's comments about a cautious consumer, not to mention Costco's comps, yeah. uh, which uh, were down a touch from the prior month. Uh, stock was down on the pre-market, but U.S. at two, whereas Canada was five. People yeah. are going to watch that. Yeah, a little bit of soft. There's maybe a little bit of concern in general about uh, the grocery side uh, of the business, and that's obviously much more of a Walmart-specific story. You know, Walmart also, you, you can't forget, is... Uh, is, is a big staple stock. So it is, it is kind of defensive. We might actually have a little bit, a different complexion of the market today where you're kind of adding back some of, uh, some of that risk that we lost. Small caps are leading to the upside, big losers over the last two days. So we're having a little bit of a, of a pendulum swing away from that real fear of, uh, of racing higher yields, choking off growth and, and, uh, and undercutting the cyclical story. Although, as you mentioned, Carl, the media stocks, two of the worst, Paramount and, uh, and, and Warner uh, Discovery are, uh, are two of the downside leaders yeah. in, uh, in the early go. Levi is uh, down almost 8% right now. They dropped, uh, those shares are dropping after the retailer slash guidance on weak wholesale revenue. Um, I believe we have a thought from Chip Berg who spoke uh, on Mad Money just about the, the two halves of the consumer base. Take a listen. We knew coming into this year, Jim, that that um, it was going to be a tale of two halves. We knew the first half was going to be really, really challenging. We were up against really, really strong comps a year ago, plus 23%. And on a first half basis, um, you know, we're flat versus that 23% base period. So I would say that's reasonable in light of uh, everything that is going on from a macroeconomic standpoint. And you've got Wells Fargo cutting a price target here to 15 from 18. So clearly some significant challenges, at least under the surface, maybe for consumers. I mean, yeah, the- it's a tough category. It has been a tough category in general. Um, so, yeah, not a great story in terms of overall consumer. But, you know, Levi's has not had a good run since its IPO like four years ago. Yet it's vastly outperformed VF Corp. You know, so it shows you that that. That part of, uh, of retail, of apparel, has been uh, very difficult, I think, to, uh, and the stocks are cheap to reflect, I think, kind of a very low growth expectation out of it. Yeah. Chip talked a lot about uh, the consumers who make more than 100K, let's say, are still pretty resilient yep. in spending, but the wholesale model at the low end has been challenging, getting, uh, getting traffic pickup intent at the likes of a Kohl's, for example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it sort of reminds me of uh, the other call that's making some news this morning, and that is smaller market cap at City on uh, Cedar Fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, just talking about a oh, potentially a weak summer season at theme parks, yeah. um, which would, again, sort of lend uh, itself to a narrative that was, that was uh, p- pinned on a weaker consumer. Even this call on Disney over at Wells today, they cut numbers, still overweight, still 147. Uh, but they're saying that um, a lot of these debates about either theme park attendance or certainly costs and streaming are not going to get settled until the September investor event. Huh. You started to hear that out of the street, that maybe people are a bit too complacent about the strength in theme parks because they're worried about everything besides theme parks within Disney in terms yeah. of long-term structural issues. I'm not sure how much you have to really adjust expectations for Disney, but Cedar Fair is a different story. It's like day Lower trip type point. stuff. and. And, and maybe that's just a lot of that was satisfied uh, in the prior couple of years. But, uh, yeah, the Disney uh, picture, it's kind of middling in terms of valuation. The balance sheet's, of course, not as strong as it was pre-Fox deal. 
Um, you know, the big questions about pace of cable loss and then the reliability of the franchise box office story, which was, again, something that you could be comfortable with for years. And it seems like it's getting choppier uh, at this point. So um, it's just, I think, a general sense of no easy way out of those longer term challenges that the stock has probably built in a lot of that at this point. Again, and keep going. We can go back to the mid 2010s and see the stock at this level. So it's not as if uh, people are overexcited about it. It's just a kind of a, a where to next. Yes, there's quali- certainly quality of the franchises relative to the, the direct competition, but how far does that get you at this point? And we should get a, a relatively new picture in terms of the state of the consumer. A week from today is when the big banks start reporting. So we'll get a sense of what they're doing with their savings, what they're doing with the, the, their deposits, and, and how they're kind of moving them maybe within the firms outside the firms. Analysts are expecting it to be kind of similar to Q1 in terms of deposit betas um, and non-interest bearing deposit outflows. That's from a Morgan Stanley note out this morning. Um, But quantitative tightening is expected to still have a very big impact on that liability side of the balance sheet. Uh, Jim's been, Jim roughed up Goldman yesterday on on, on the nine. And uh, but on the other hand, there is a sort of notion that we always complain when we go into bank earnings season too hot in terms yeah. of markets and stocks. Yeah. Uh, it would be nice not to do so as much as we have in prior quarters. They I mean, are bouncing 1% today, which I think just from a market-wide perspective is is a bit of relief because the pressure on the banks yesterday was one of those things that had traders saying, okay, do we now have to worry about this again? We yeah. have to worry about the regionals going back toward the lows again. It seems like we got some relief on that front. The, the index up 1%, but that doesn't get you out of the, the bigger picture fundamental questions about profitability levels and where we go from here. You've got just these massive capital requirements on top of what they already have coming down the pike, whether it's with the FDIC and replenishing its fund, whether it's with Basel III, which is expected. Uh, We're expecting some rules potentially as soon as a few weeks from now, um, which could also create somewhat of a dent to capital levels. Um, And then, of course, what's going to happen with regard to the regional banks and the Fed's final decision there? Um, You know, will they have to be subject to more regulation, more stress testing, more capital uh, as a buffer to prevent some of the events that we saw in March? Um, All of that is still kind of working its way through the system. And so there's just this overhang over banks right now that, you know, there's just no clarity. And I don't know if earnings is going to be the catalyst that provides that clarity. Yeah, uh, regionals are doing pretty well today. Zions, yeah. Comerica, Lincoln National, Truist, uh, all 2% or better. Interesting uh, uh, diet of news in autos today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Webb Bush on Rivian. Uh, Dan Ives argues that the story is finally coming around. He goes to 30. Uh, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas upping targets on both GM and Ford. GM uh, to 41 and Ford to 16 on the heels of some of these sales numbers. The first half was pretty torrid. Absolutely. And, and it was about the pie getting bigger, at least bigger than expected. Uh, mm-hmm. So it wasn't just about a little market share uh, back and forth between them. It seems like in aggregate demand was strong. GM's numbers the other day and their estimates for uh, the, senior, uh, the, uh, the annual sales pace, I think has been a relief there. If you look at something like AutoNation, um, you know, it's up 60 percent year to date, pretty much at a high. Uh, and if you look at, you know, again, though, it brings up the Fed's uh, slight conundrum, which is, the most rate-sensitive parts of the economy, autos and home builders, have been impervious because the, the scarcity and the demand story has been uh, overrunning what's the, the rate effect has been so far. Um, so good news, I think, in general. I mean, we always should remember autos are the biggest manufacturing product and consumer product you know, in the overall economy. Uh, so very interesting that it's not just about 
longer-term declines. You know, we can play with the EV numbers and, and all the rest, whether they're making enough progress on the, the legacy automakers in that area. But right now, it seems like a little bit of a, of a relief month, if mm. nothing else, for the car company. How much of it do you think is just kind of a catch-up? Because for so long, the supply was constrained yeah, for autos. Prices were so high. It was really difficult for consumers to get access to it. So now they're kind of in this situation where they're willing to pay higher financing in yeah. order to obtain a vehicle. Maybe they set aside some money they were going to buy two years ago, and now they've finally been able to kind of take that chance. Sure. No, I think it's, it's a huge part of it. I mean, supply has come back, and it's, it's, it's been soaked up. Um, we talked about the 4.4% annual wage growth. I mean, you know, I, I, traditionally, Americans buy as much car as they can finance with the monthly payment they can afford. Mm. So that's going to get the cars off the lot at some level, even if you know, they're not going for the higher price. Although it's the it's the supply on new that's taking the pressure yes. off used, which is what we want to exactly. watch regarding CPI next week. Completely. And that's supposed to be a better story for CPI. What I do find interesting is, um, now shelter rent is a different story, but it's the these things like used cars, which have a huge impact on CPI, but that individuals don't buy that often. You know, if you buy one every couple of years, it's, it's, it's a lot. So I think that's also another reason why people are a little more comfortable on the inflation story. It feels as if it's not everything going up all the time and you have to play catch-up. Whereas a high-frequency purchases like food is where we have seen relief? Uh, we've seen some relief there, absolutely, and gas. I mean, oh, gasoline yeah, yeah, is gas. like the one thing people know the price of almost every day. Um, and that's been, you know, certainly on the downswing. Yeah. Oil certainly moderating. Um, you know, there was a piece about U.S. production you know, on pace to, to be record levels, um, despite efforts by Saudis and some other exporters to try and crimp demand or crimp their supply uh, in, in light of, of what's clearly, you know, pretty decent demand yeah, out there. Yeah, I think we had Ed Morse of City here yesterday talking about how the U.S. may set some records in single country, single month production yeah. ever yeah. Uh, in the month of June. By the way, oil is on track for the second street weekly loss. Uh, Shell warning about significantly tougher Q2 earnings and gas. Uh, Commerce Bank did trim their uh, targets for the end, year-end Brent. They go to uh, 85 from 90, and West Texas they go to 80 from 85. So I don't know. It's people. City's point is that uh, analysts generally overestimated the impact on supply, out right. of Ukraine and out of OPEC. Uh, certainly, the demand quotient hasn't been as material. Yeah, and it helps explain why we're still why a softish landing is still in play. Because of all the things, a lot of things have to go wrong at once. And one thing that's not really going against the economy right now is the energy bill relative to last year. Although we did see how quickly that can change. Yeah, of course. And Absolutely. if there's any kind of shift in the geopolitical situation, um, you know, that can change really quickly. But and just China. The, and, and China. China. Demand, yeah. And the overall efficiencies, though, of the producers here in the United States does give some comfort in a way that maybe historically wasn't the case where, um, you know, these moves by Saudis and, and the Russians could have had a much more demonstrable effect on prices. Now the U.S. and its efficiency in producing and so forth is kind of able to to run its own game. Yeah, it's, it's good to be uh, good to be the marginal player. Um, on the FDA, Squawk did a great job uh, covering the approval of this Alzheimer's drug, Lakembi, uh, for Biogen. Stock's not responding well today, Mike. It, no. As to why. No. Uh, well, uh, first of all, it was kind of handicapped for you know a while beforehand. So I think a lot of it got into um, you know got into the stock. There is some talk about the way it's going to be labeled with some warnings and maybe uncertainties about exactly how 
uh, you know, how much it's going to be prescribed because of that and, and pricing and all the rest of it. So I think a lot of the news was was already in the in the stock. And now it's about really figuring out exactly how it's going to penetrate the market once it's uh, once it is out there. Isn't accessibility also a, a yeah. component here, too, because if you're someone who lives in maybe a, a rural area or, a, you know, one not near a somewhere that distributes this drug, it's a, what is it, twice a month that you have to get an injection. Yeah. Um, there's side effects risks, logistic risks, accessibility risks. There's a waiting list. So it could be a little clunky for a while before it really becomes much more mainstream, especially as, um, you know, as a treatment for the very, very large total addressable market that is Alzheimer's. Uh, and expensive too, 26K, something like that uh, for the cost. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll watch to see what kind of policy moves they make in terms of coverage. Uh, but what's going to feed the argument, once again, that we are in some kind of golden age yeah. uh, regarding Alzheimer's, certainly cancer vaccines, mRNA technology. I mean, good time to be around. No, without argument. a doubt. Yeah, I'm glad a lot of that's coming, uh, <laughs> you know, coming in sight. Yes. <laughs> um, although it's, it's interesting, and this, again, is just a kind of market prism. But uh, medical tools and devices have been very weak as a category. And this is a growthy area. It kind of travels along with some of the um, kind of tech-related uh, areas of the market. And that's been falling away. And I've been just been wondering if, if there's a sense out there that there's going to be either non-invasive uh, type solutions or something pressures on pricing longer term. It's going to cool it uh, on the medical, on the lab equipment and testing and things like that, whether AI is all of a sudden going to obviate a lot of, the, a lot of that. That's just a thought uh, in, in terms of looking at that uh, med tech struggle at this point. They are expensive stocks, which have had a hard time for a while, too. Finally, on Apple, um, this report that as they roll out the Vision Pro, obviously a very uh, high-priced product, it's going to be a very slow, deliberate rollout. Uh, there's reports of appointment-only viewing. Uh, stock's down a touch here this morning, but we'd be curious to see how they market something at this price point. It is. I think the price point has a lot to do with it. It sounds smart in theory. Make it kind of like the Soho house of electronics where... Oh, I was thinking the Taylor Swift tickets. Of, <laughs> uh, you know. Honestly, it's probably more expensive to get a Taylor Swift ticket yes, than is. a membership at Soho. I, I don't know. I didn't get either. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, make it exclusive. Try and bring in the people who are real aficionados for these kind of newer, high-tech, more expensive products as opposed to making it something that just anyone can go out right, and buy. Yeah. Definitely building some scarcity or FOMO uh, rolling out in New York and L.A., for example, uh, before they go to the rest of the country. We'll and see. the luxury of not having to, not needing the money and not needing to make the product a huge thing all at once and, you know, just let people want it for a while. Yeah. yeah. A classic Apple second strike advantage. Uh, as we go to break, let's watch Bonds. Um, we've gotten our data for the day and pretty much for the week as well. Uh, we'll watch how the bond market responds further to the jobs number today. We did see some relief on the two-year, which did crack below five and is still there. Uh, Dow down 50 or 60 points to uh, finish up this week. We'll be right back. We mentioned earlier some uh, pessimistic notes about theme parks, but hotel travel holding in there this morning. Uh, Airbnb in particular was up 17 in June. They did successfully win the delay of this new law in New York City requiring hosts to register and just a broad sense of ongoing travel demand re remaining resilient uh, globally uh, as we get into the summer. Uh, S&P's gone green, 44-14, uh, uh, and the Dow shaving its losses to less than 20 points. Back in a moment. It's been a big week for auto sales and some interesting developments in the EV market when it comes to sales. Our Phil LeBeau has details on that. Morning, Phil. 
Hey, Carl, take a look at shares of Rivian. Another big day for Rivian, up more than 9%. And we're showing you this stock over the last three months. You go back to April 25th, it's essentially doubled in terms of its price. The company reiterating its guidance for building 50,000 vehicles. And keep in mind, the R1T for the first half of this year, best-selling electric pickup in this country. It's not the F-150 Lightning, it's the Rivian R1T. In fact, it's the fourth best-selling EV overall, according to Motor Intelligence, which crunched the data for us. Not surprising, you have the Model Y and the Model 3 that are at the top of the list by a wide margin. And then you see the Bolt EUV, which, by the way, is being discontinued by General Motors, and then the Rivian R1T. Tesla continues to dominate this market. It still has over 60% market share, according to Motor Intelligence for the first half of this year. Hyundai has moved into the number two slot ahead of General Motors, but still way, way behind Tesla. And as you take a look at GM and Ford, you know, one thing you continue to hear about from analysts and you hear about it from investors is where's the ramp up in production? When is it going to happen? And it's, it's expected to happen sometime in the next couple of years. We know they've put the plans in place. The capital has been allocated and will be spent in terms of building these plants. They've got six EV final assembly plants, a slew of battery plants that are planned. But it's taking longer than I think some people expected. And that's reflected a little bit in shares of GM and Ford, though they have had a nice move higher over the last month, six weeks, in terms of uh, relative to where they've been, guys. Yeah, it was surprising, Phil, when you said about uh, Rivian's truck being the best-selling EV truck overtaking, uh, you know, the other models. Um, You know, what is the key driver of that? It's a higher price point, I believe, right? It is a higher price point. Look, they're executing right now. I went to the Rivian plant, talked with RJ Scarinch, the founder and CEO, back after their last earnings result. Totally different situation in central Illinois compared to a year, two years ago. They've got a rhythm now. They have hit their stride in terms of production. And remember, it's not just the pickup truck. They've also got the SUV as well as the electric delivery van that they build for Amazon. Pretty fascinating, Phil. Uh, We'll talk maybe more about uh, GM Ford uh, later on today and this uh, Jonas note about uh, the higher price targets. That's their Phil DeBeau. When we come back, a more reaction, though, to this morning's jobs number. We'll talk to the former Fed vice chair, Alan Blinder, and Goldman's chief economist, Jan Hatzius. Don't go away. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. 
We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.